Britannica is thrilled to introduce Launchpack's GCSE, winner of the BET Award 2021 for Best Classroom Aid for Learning, Teaching and Assessment. We understand that you need to use your resources both in class and virtually. Launchpack empowers a blended teaching and learning approach, transforming the everyday experience for both teachers and students by delivering an interactive environment for schools. Let us prove this to you by giving you a free trial access, plus all GA teachers get 10% off. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy this next JogPod with John. Hello there and welcome to another JogPod. Today I'm joined by David Alcock. David, you're a geography teacher and a teaching and learning champion at Bradford Grammar School. But as well, you're a writer, you're a presenter, you've got key themes of something I want to really delve into with this podcast of, of hope and optimism in education. And you're also interested in cross-curricular outdoor learning. It's a pleasure to have you on JobPod today. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me to be a guest, John. Listen, you're a teacher. You've written extensively about geography education. You've got a blog site. You tweet. I follow you on Twitter. And you're currently working on a hopeful education website. I don't know how you fit it all in. It gives us an awful lot to talk about, though. But just before we get into the now of it all, I'd, I'd just like to explore what led you to to that current thinking about this need for optimism in education. Yeah, I've been thinking about this and thinking back to my time at uh, Loughborough Grammar School in the late 80s and early 90s. I remember our geography teacher uh, showed us a video about the debate between Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich. And Paul Ehrlich was the one who wrote the, the population bomb who predicted mass famines due to overpopulation. Um, and Julian Simon was more of an economist and he placed a bet against Ehrlich that uh, 10 commodities would go down in price in the ensuing decade between 1980 and 1990. And the video showed that Simon won the bet, um, which would sort of give hope in terms of the fact that humans can increase their numbers whilst also managing to um, re uh, resource themselves. Um, it also, this Julian Simon talked about the Green Revolution, about let fewer deaths from famine and increased living standards, even though the world population was rising. And I had that inspiration, but I was also interested in stuff in the, in the media, in environmental issues. So this is a time when uh, the environment was quite high on the agenda. Um, there was deforestation, species loss, acid rain. Um, and even looking back, I've kept my old uh, geography book from when I was 13. And, and at the back of there, there was something we were writing about climate change even then, you know, 19, uh, the very light at late 80s, early 90s. And, yeah, I've kept my interest up in environmental issues and um, I've, I've taken part in protests and um, and actions. Um, and, you know, I... I I'm a member of an environmental pressure group and a political party, and we've we've done the things at home for yeah to to make the house greener. We've got the air source heat pump, and I'm on my bike, etc. So I've got this sort of tension between humans sort of progressing, if you like, or doing well with their lot, or most humans, and also the environmental challenges. Um, and so I've had this debate. It's, it's a it's a great one in geography. It, it will it will never end about overpopulation. You know, how can humanity thrive without, you know, destabilizing our environment? This idea of sustainable development, which is coming in when I was at, in the sixth form. Um, 
But as I went into teaching, I was thinking, how can I encourage discussions that aren't sort of one-sided? They, they take into account um, progress, if you like, but also environmental um, and economic challenges. Um, and then Hans Rosling came along. I think we're going to, um, I'd like to talk about him later on. And it, he basically brought into um, uh, full view some of the, the improvements in social standards in many people, in, for, in most people, in most parts of the world. Um, and the sort of controversial part is that, that I, this made me think about these environmental movements and social concerns I've had. Perhaps they've underplayed these improvements to, you know, to their own detriment. Um, and I got, I got to say early on that I, I do acknowledge I'm a privileged white middle-aged man from a prosperous country. So you know, I do need to check any sort of sentiment that might make me sound like I'm supporting the status quo. You know, I don't support the status quo, but I do think without looking at positive changes, we do deny ourselves uh, hope for the future. And, um, and those who sort of campaign for a, uh, a different future might be tarred with this sort of uh, negativity brush. I, I hope you don't mind, I've, I've dug out a couple of quotations. Um, no, good. So one's from uh, Rebecca Solnit, who wrote a book called Hope in the Dark. And she says, you know, hope doesn't mean denying the realities of severe challenges like climate change and all sorts of inequalities, but it means facing them and addressing them by remembering what else the 20th century, 21st century has brought, including the movements, heroes and shifting consciousness. And hope is not the belief that everything was, is or will be fine. Yeah, the evidence is around us of tremendous suffering. The hope that she's interested in is not a sunny, everything is getting better narrative, although it may be a counter to the everything is getting worse narrative. And I think she puts it really well. And I can recommend that book to anyone who wants to read more deeply. Um, and I thanks, thanks to Ros Birch for putting that book in my um, direction. So that's uh, Rebecca Solnit, Hope in the Dark. I struggle a little bit. You mentioned it just been passing, but I struggle a little bit with just the idea of sustainable development sitting next to each other. Um, there's a lot of writing about for the future, how much of the planet's resources we're consuming. And this notion of continued development is a difficult one to square with sustainability. Sustaining means to keep something. I was talking to Simon Carr about this the other week. Um, it's, it's about keeping things relatively stable. And we're continually looking for growth as the model. Yeah, it's really good that I recently came across uh, Danny Dawling's Slowdown book. And it's, it's made me think that we, we don't need to have growth to have progress, if you like, or, don't, or even the word development. Yeah, development and progress don't need to involve growth. They just need to involve improvement. And I, I think there is this sort of overly... Um, this, this, there's too much of a, uh, a focus on the need for growth, um, whereas we should be thinking, how can we improve things? And yeah, there's a big tension there, isn't it? And some people have, have, have discounted the whole notion and, 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 and it, it has been taken on board by companies and it's been sort of greenwashed, isn't it? It's a really interesting term to take apart, I think. I think so. I think for students, particularly for young people, what are we doing in the future? And, and 
How do we see things developing? Do we need that extra, whatever, T-shirt? Do we need to, to buy that extra bit? Or are there other ways for us to look at remaining sustainable and remaining happy and remaining optimism, op optimistic about the future? Your article starts to touch on that. It was in um, TG in autumn 2019, wasn't it? it Optimism, progress, and geography, celebrating and calibrating, or yeah. celebrating and calibration, I think, was uh, was the title. Uh, and you've talked just earlier today about Hans Rosling, uh, the Gapminder Foundation, the Factfulness book, which I thought was, when I first came across it and tried those questions out, I came up in the same way as, as the, the others in the audience. I viewed the world in a more negative way. My answers very much reflected that. I know you've written about that in your article, Optimism, Progress and Geography, Celebration and Calibration. That was in Teaching Geography in uh, Autumn 2019. And we can put a link to that as um, when this podcast goes out. But in the article, you, you reference Hans Rosling and the Gapminder Foundation and the Factfulness book, which I used a lot. And it, it had a dramatic impact on me. But I, I'm interested to find that new teachers, particularly coming in, haven't come across it. So for anyone who's new to teaching, David, just tell us a little bit about Gapminder and the Factfulness book, and then perhaps its impact on how you've modified it for your teaching. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Hans Rosling was a, was a Swedish professor of public health. He yeah, passed away in 2017, but he was doing some work in the 1990s with his students and they, he found out they tend to split the world into two groups, the West and the rest, or us and them, and that they will never catch up and they were always gonna have stubbornly low levels of healthcare, education, et cetera. And so he, that got him thinking and he, um, uh, he created this thing called an, an ignorance test where he asked his students and later on he asked development professionals and he put it out on, on the internet as well and asked people to um, decide how much access to electricity people have, how many years women uh, are spent in, in school compared to men, etc. And he found that a lot of people underestimated the, the, the progress that had been made in many areas. Uh, he, he also, when the, the word gapminder came from the fact that he perceives the world as, as having most people are in the middle most people are in the middle there's not a, a big division between rich and poor now he's being critiqued um uh, on on several fronts um but in terms of lots of social indicators there, there has been a bit of an, a, a quite a bit of a narrowing and, and he's developed this gapminder website and i've used it with my students and you can pick any two out of a number of indicators to see how different countries compare with each other so as income increases, do you have more access to dental care? There's a, there's a huge range there. And I give them the total freedom to say, you know, what does income correlate with and why? And, and, and what are the anomalies there? And that's a really good way of using it. It's a great learning tool. And um, you can also press play and it actually shows how countries have changed over time. And most countries have seen an improvement in most factors over time. And, and when they, uh, you can see which decade they, they say, uh, improve and, and perhaps when there's been a fallback and see so look at countries like South Korea 
and see that their rapid improvement through the 60s and 70s, for example. Um, and there is the ignorance test that's still there. There's even a new version of the ignorance test. Um, and there's also a section called Dollar Street. You can look at photos of some families all around the world, which, you know, sometimes numbers and, and, and so-called facts don't tell the full story. And so he, his daughter-in-law, uh, Anna, went out and um, has documented different families around the world. And what does an income of this correlate with in terms of what you use to brush your teeth with? What do you use to, what does your kitchen look like? Um, so yeah, it's a great, a great resource. And I mean, in terms of how I, I've, I've said one way of how I've used them, um, I've, I've, I've developed some active assemblies. One was indoors, one was a whole school one where I asked people to stand up and vote and I've, I've done one outside and I've asked people to cluster around the answer that they choose. Um, but I think the, the Gapminder project has, has sort of, it's got a lot of application, not just in geography, but in the sort of pastoral sphere in the school. So our pastoral team um, have been receptive materials that can engender uh, hope in their students. And these sort of long-term trends and the, the, the fact that more people have got access to education than some of our students believe can actually hopefully help the students to escape this sort of always on aspect of social media um, and just step back and look, look at some of these bigger trends. Um, I think Dollar Street's really good for counteracting what's almost the danger of a single story. You get, um, you get Red Nose Day and people in the same situation as those in Dollar Street are always depicted as miserable and in need of, of our aid our aid, our help, rather than the story that you get from Dollar Street, which is of, of people who are making positive progress in their lives. It does draw out the differences, but it's also uh, a different narrative, I think, from, from that one of Red Nose Day. It is, yeah, yeah. And I think that idea, this, the single story, and also the sort of, uh, the them and us, it, it, it takes that apart because you see the, the, the family. Um, I mean, I'm not, I just want to say, I'm not totally um, lacking in criticism of, the, of, of how the factfulness has, has worked. Um, and some people use it in a, in a, in a way that's sort of very, um, it sort of papers over some of the, the, the cracks. So, I mean, Hans Losing does say, he does say, the world is bad, but getting better. It's like a baby in an incubator, he says. Yeah, and Max Rosa from Our World in Data says, the world is much better. The world is awful. The world can be much better. But actually, looking again at factfulness, there's um, Dan Whittle and some of the decolonizing geography group have opened my eyes a little bit about the some of the things that factfulness doesn't bring out. It doesn't really bring out some of the, the roots of the existing inequalities. Um, it, it's not that historical. It doesn't really look at some of the at the role of capitalism. Um, and there's one line in Factfulness, which I do have a quibble with. It's, you know, they've written, the methods we are using to improve our world are working just fine. And I, I know he's a very, he, he was a very great um, rhetorical speaker, but to say that things are just fine, it does sit a little bit uneasy on, on a second reading of the book. Um, so, I, it, it's not perfect, but it, it's it's amazing. It's it, it's a fantastic, thought-provoking resource. 
Um, and I think that's the stuff of being a geographer is to critique and yeah. Yeah. to look at the complexity of a problem and to understand that it's a wicked problem and and to build knowledge. So we've, we develop from uh, our thinking on the backs of others, always. There's always something that somebody's not quite got right and knowledge is continually being created. Yes. And, and, and even when we create it, somebody will critique ours. Well, that's fair enough because there's progress to be made through that critique. Yes, yeah, and that, that is how knowledge sort of moves on doesn't it when when um different perspectives are brought to different um different writers work uh, well and that's how you're working isn't it because you're constantly developing your thinking as as we've understood from how you've been explaining that and it's a slow process towards settling on anything and then we've got to constantly reflect on were we right is do I need to move on? So you settled on the term hopeful geography. Uh, I'm going to ask you a multi-part question, really, because I wonder how you arrived at the term, because you've been gradually building your thinking. So what's it look like for you now? And how does it differ from another term, hopeful education? Yeah, OK, well, I was three or four years ago, I was... I tended to use the word optimism more, and but having read uh, David Hicks, and, and he basically talks about the potential complacency and in, inaction of optimism. So optimism might be things are going to get better, whereas hope is a bit more active. So I have moved towards the, the idea of hope rather than optimism. But I do recognise that, that my personality and many people's personality are sort of naturally either optimistic or, or pessimistic. So I, I'm trying to recognise my own sort of inbuilt optimism and try to take that out of the picture a little bit. Um, and so I've settled on the hopeful education and, and David Orr, he wrote, um, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up, whereas optimism is a bit more, um, bit more passive. Um, I mean, I've, I've split hopeful education down into three sort of strands. One is the ability to evaluate progress. And we've, we've discussed a bit of that today. And one is to look at the potential of human nature to work for the common good. It sounds very idealistic, but there's plenty of examples out there. Um, a bit of a balance to um, the tragedy of the commons idea. And then the third part of hopeful education is about futures thinking and uh, education for sustainable development. So that that's hopeful education, trying to look at those three strands. Hopeful geography, well, again, some things might sound controversial but I do think that if we're not careful geography a bit like history can become a bit more a bit a bit, bit too focused on dramatic disastrous unusual events at the expense of more gradual trends um, and it is it is interesting to, to, to study natural hazards and the disasters that sometimes follow it is interesting to look at the geography of conflict um, uh, of unrest etc but and um, we don't need to ignore those problems to actually um, spend time looking at the successes it's had as well. And I talked about the Green Revolution before, and we can critique the Green Revolution, and we should critique it, but it's often overlooked. And, and yet these, these big advancements in terms of feeding the world poor and hungry that, that, that came from selective breeding and later on with, with uh, genetic modification, they've They've affected hundreds of millions or billions of lives. And yet we spend more time looking at 
um, some of the say, say volcanic eruptions, which are crucial and they will affect many people's lives. But there, there we might be talking hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands. It, there's a, a somewhat of an imbalance there, and again, it could be controversial. And I don't, I don't want to upset anyone from <laughs> any volcanologists. Um, and there, there are, and just because something kills someone doesn't mean say it's more in, more or less important than something that, that doesn't. But I, I think there's some idea that, that that we should look at some of these longer running more gradual, perhaps less outwardly exciting trends that have helped humanity to to um, to, to flourish. And I, I put it as well as I as I can, and, and I don't want to get anyone's backs up, but I'm just just thinking of that kind of conception of putting things in in context might be useful within geography. And I think back to my degrees and my A levels, and and I, it made me think how can I, after all this, the geography I've studied and, and read about, and how can I have got some of the factfulness questions wrong? Yeah, the ignorance test question, how can I have studied this subject that's writing about the world, and how can I have got some of those questions wrong? And it made me sit back and think, well, perhaps these longer-term, big, global trends are not covered as much in, in geography. Perhaps that, that's my... Yeah, I'm putting it out there again. I'm, I'm very happy, as you say, to be critiqued. But there, there we go. Yeah, there, there is an, an issue, I suppose. I, I know the term sometimes is, is geography porn, isn't it? Where people are drawn to disasters. Um, and whenever anything happens, it, 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 makes, the, it makes big news. It makes news on, on, on the TV. It makes news on, on Twitter. And we're drawn towards looking at... Yes these sorts of epic events rather than a more measured look. And geography is the position of the subject really that sits itself as being looking at, yes, the past, but more to do with the present and the future. Why is it here? Why is it like this? But what will it look like in the future? It's one of the few subjects, I think, in school that gives us the opportunity to ask that sort of question about what will the future look like how can we shape it how can we involve the people we teach in helping to think about that because it's their future rather than, than ours really yeah and uh, and this idea of the uh, sort of geography is there to give as well as this sort of granular detail but a big picture a big picture of humanity and the earth and i just want to say this does include things like climate change as well that that is a global slow moving um event and also inequality and the impact of colonialism. These are big, um, big, slow-moving, deep structural events as well that also need to be looked at. So I'm not, I'm not just saying that we should look at the big, slow-moving, gradual good things. It's the big, slow-moving, gradual challenges as well. And that idea of big picture geography is something that I've I've, I've come to think of as, as something that we need to think, you know, sit back and, and think of. And again, this the, the thing you mentioned about, about sort of geography porn, of pulling us away from that picture. Also, when there's certain specialisms within geography and, and we do need to specialise and it's been brilliant to listen to some of the previous jog pod, absolutely fascinating listening to people and their specialisms within geography. Um, but at some point that sort of big picture needs to be um, communicated at least at secondary level to the students so they can put what they're finding in this context. I wanted to ask you really, because you, you talked about the negative and, and widely held misconceptions about the world. 
Yeah. And I, I mentioned it too, because I, I felt the same. I felt the same as you. I, I looked at the questions and thought, well, as I was part way through, I was thinking, well, I know what the answer is going to be. It's the one the opposite of the one that I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. If I want to beat the chimps, uh, what do you think the reasons are for such negativity? I'm going to ask a double barrel question again, really. What are the reasons? But what do you think are the, the barriers that are preventing educators and students from achieving that more, more optimistic education? Yeah, I mean, Hans Rosling has written on this. There's uh, Bobby Duffy, a psychologist, has written on, on this as well. And um, there's more and more coming out. There's more and more research coming out year after year. Um, so... I, I, I've written about this a, a bit and I've, I've split it into a, about roughly four reasons. One is our psychological biases and uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman and uh, Amos Tversky and others have written about things like the, the negativity bias, the confirmation bias, the, um, the fact that we tend to imitate others. We tend to imitate what other people say. We tend to be susceptible to stereotyping, to othering and a single story. Um, so there's lots of psychological biases, and it's, that's something I've been really interested in, uh, interested in, um, in, in finding out more about. The second is our personal experiences. So we, if we live in an affluent area, we um, might tend to think of other areas as being not, not quite as affluent. Um, and then there's the, uh, the media. So the media does tend to uh, give us a sort of an overdramatic worldview. It, Again, it looks at short-term, exceptional, usually negative events. Um, so the the idea that, that with with headlines, uh, dog bites man doesn't get a headline, but but man bites dog does. It's, it's un, they're, they're they're in the headlines because they're unusual. They you know, and if it bleeds, it leads. You know, crudely put, we're going to see the the bad things about humanity. And the fact we've got this twenty-four hour access, and our students have you know, perhaps more than many of us will will be led by what pops up on their screen. Um, and the media will downplay more gradual, commonplace and positive trends. Um, so students will come in to the class and they'll say, did you hear about that that flood? Did you hear about that? Someone said, did you hear about the, the high school massacre and where 12 people were killed? And these are you know, things we, we should know about, but, but no one walks in the classroom and said, did you hear about the fact that um, um, solar panels are, are, are increasing coverage or that we now have 2% of our electricity from coal. No one comes into the first in the classroom and says that. And, um, but then, so then the other inference on our worldviews is, is education. And this is what, this is what really got me thinking. And there's a paragraph or so in factfulness, there's been uh, bits in, in Bobby Duffy's book, the perils of perception. And I think we all need to, to, and we do it anyway, but we need to think about curriculum, lesson content, textbooks, yeah, some textbooks are out of date. Some concentrate more on unusual events rather than long-term trends. I've been flicking through textbooks, looking at graphs and thinking, how often do we look at the bigger picture, the, 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 how things have changed over time? And that, that's been quite instructive. Um, so I think, yeah, education has got a key role to play as well, but it's building on these other biases. And we, we live in a, a media-saturated environment that does affect what our young people come in the classroom with i was there were two things i was really interested in one 
I'd not come across Bobby Duffy before, and you talked about a sentence he wrote about the mistakes and shortcuts made by the human mind, which I thought was, <clears throat> was a lovely quote. Um, and the other thing was to do with your exploring textbooks. Um, and I, I hadn't done that until we decided we would do it as, as part of the, the Physical Geography Special Interest Group for the GA. And we unpicked some of the textbooks. Yes, for their content, because some of it was well out of date, but also for the, the level in which they were asking students to engage with the material. And a lot of it was just on a comprehension level. So you were just giving back what you'd been given rather than, rather than more deeply thinking, which would counteract the things to some extent it's about critical thinking, really, to yeah. some extent, what you, you've mentioned about, about Bobby Duffy and um, developing students' capabilities to cope with those sorts of challenges and insecurities of the future. So I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. I suppose it's, it, it's definitely useful. I mean, one of the things I've, I think we could do is, is incorporate more critical thinking in, in our teaching. And I, I know you've been involved in the GA's critical thinking uh, project um, asking students to take a step back and often I'll, I'll do that very often at a level and I'll try to bring it in more at GCSE but that at GCSE in particular the, the, the weight of content is 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 very hard to get through and that's you know it's commonly recognized this current the current GCSEs but there's still scope to do that and students need to do it for the decision making exercises um, the uh, the the issues component they they, they need to be able to assess yeah, or evaluate anyway so we we need to look at that and and use textbooks but don't just settle on the textbook questions um and yeah we, we, we're working within the constraints of a, of a curriculum we're working of a, working with the constraints of specifications and it's a tough job to um to write and put together textbooks um to fulfill those objectives whilst also asking students to to, to, to critique what they what they've got there and um, but it is in some respects, it's it's fairly straightforward. I I, I put some of these these graphs about uh, showing so-called progress on the board. I ask students to critique them, and it's really yeah, students will will leap in on that. And if it's not their own work, they'll be happy to to critique it and say, "What about this? What doesn't it show?" Um, and yeah, that we should do that more often. I think you write about the optimism gap, and and you also had a, a quote, I think, about the optimism gap m might cause a fatal form of passivity. And I think that's, that's what we've got to be really careful about, about not developing when we've only given students information because we're worried about the exam. We give them information. We ask them to reproduce that. We give them comprehension style questions to respond to, which don't actually put them in a position where they will challenge that optimism gap. They just re return to us what we've given to them. Yeah, I mean, I've come across this idea of the optimism gap, the, the fact that people are more pessimistic about the future of the whole world than about their own future. And um, yeah, there's a website called EU Opinions and, and they, they interviewed 12,000 people throughout the European Union. And 
they found out that most people are more optimistic about their own future compared to the future of their country or the world as a whole. And um, and I replicated this with with my year 10s and with year 12s and with an, another school's year 10s. And all those three groups overestimate their, their optimism for their own future, or they, they estimate it very highly, and they underestimate, or they, they are very pessimistic about the future of the country, and even more so about the world. And the uh, researchers, DeVries and Hoffman, they, they said this is... Um, this is challenging for the for the future because if we underestimate society's capability to be uh, resilient and to make change, then we then we become um, passive due to a personal feeling of powerlessness. So we actually think that um, it's not possible for society to change. Whereas if you show evidence that societies can change, you can actually show people that there is a chance to change. Um, and that relates to things like climate change um, and uh, other challenges. And when I do the hopeful education or grounds for hope days, I, I try to engender that. And I, and I never say these things have happened automatically. I, I say, we're hopefully, we're gonna try and give you some hope that things can change because they've, they've changed in the past. And it's not automatic. There's been uh, pressure groups there's been groups of people like you when you've grown up and you've made choices about how you're going to approach the world. Um, and if you despair about how the world's going, you're less likely to engage it because you think it's, it's no use. And this author, Roz Birch, that I've, I presented at the GA conference this, this year, she, she um, had a brilliant quote that got her thinking about hope. And it was, what's the point, miss? What's the point? She was starting up a session on sustainability. And someone put their hand up and said, what's the point, Miss? And, I, and that just kick-started her on looking at hope in environmental education. And that, that, that's where it all boils down to. Well, there is a point because we have made progress in, in, in many respects. I've, it does, I, it yeah. does take you, it, it does take you politically into challenging waters, though, because yeah. we're going to be talking about the, the growth model which successive governments base... Their, their model for the success of the nation on, the growth model is wrong. We can't continue with this growth model. Um, and if you start challenging that with young people, you're beginning to then get them thinking about the political system and who they should vote for. And that be becomes difficult for teachers. It does become difficult. And again, one problem with, with instilling hope is it could result in complacency and people will say, oh, I'm, I'm happy to have the political parties we've got now. Um, things seem to be working out now. Um, but actually, in, in the flip side of that, if people despair about the future, and again, this research with um, uh, from the EU opinions and others have shown that if you, if you despair about the, the, the future of the world, that can increase voting for more extreme populist parties. And again, we want to develop our students to be broader global citizens and, and not to get driven into the hand of, of populism. Well, it's a tricky path. And, and I think we're just thinking about it as we go along. It's a tricky path to tread. When you look at Greta Thunberg and the attitude of some politicians towards the things that she's saying, it's very difficult for young people to process. And... 
And it's no wonder that a number of them suffer from eco-anxiety. I talked to, to Kit Rackley about this. Kit said it was a safeguarding issue in school. And, and I know Childline have published a section on their website supporting young people who've been, on the one hand, upset by the slew of bad news, but I'm, I'm sure challenged by what adults are saying when Greta Thunberg expresses some of their anxieties very eloquently on a global stage. Yeah, really, really, this is really, really interesting. And um, Greta Thunberg has said, we don't want your hope. And that's really interesting because I'm, as an adult, you know, as an adult now, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell or advise students to have hope, but she's speaking perhaps on behalf of a significant number of young people saying, we don't want your hope. And what I think the risk is of trying to engender a hopeful view of the world is, is that we're, we're saying, right, it's okay for us, but we want you to, we want your, the younger generation to shoulder the task of, of improving the future. And, and we're not necessarily gonna change. But so, so I think the way that we have to work with this concept of hope is we have to model it on what we're doing as teachers, as adults, as schools. Yeah, we could push for carbon neutral schools. Um, we could look at um, what our current generation is doing. We could we could display our own behaviours so that we're not just shouldering this sort of idea of anything to do with the future is only on the students. Um, so I, that's that's the way I I think we can go about it if we're all part of this this sort of journey together. Um, and yeah, I. Kit's work on climate change and, and um, eco-anxiety is, is really inspiring. Um, it's really inspiring. And I, I think, yeah, people, children will, will be anxious about uh, the world, not only if they physically, their material possessions are threatened by a flood or, or, or a drought, but also if they feel like their futures are at risk and they've lost control, then that will lead to anxiety. Yeah, it's, it's, this, it, it's a tough, it's a, it's a, it's a tough, nut to crack isn't it and we need to acknowledge anxiety and hopefully try and try and counter it not just with sort of good news stories but by counter it by saying we're all in this together and, and, and modeling what we can do and what what we uh, can do to try and work towards this sustainable future i know as part of that now because I've, I've been reading your blog on on oldcock.blog for, for for a number of years but you're now working on a hopeful education website which is a Pretty, pretty mammoth task, really. <laughs> so what do you see as the purpose of that? What, what's your aim for it and what's next? Yeah, it, it's a way partly of a repository, somewhere to put my thoughts, lesson plans, assembly scripts and so on in, in one place because my blog has been a, basically a, a, a way of writing about certain topics and some of them have nothing to do with hopeful education. So this would be a way of uh, hopefully for teachers and perhaps students to access some of these ideas some of the um, I know it must be it, it's hard to like write assemblies and you can think oh I'll, I'll, I'll have a look at this and see if that works um, I'm also yeah hoping to develop an idea of a sort of a toolkit some some way where students or teachers can go and, and think right what what can I do and where should I look um, but I'm also thinking of some kind of interactivity I'm working with a um, a friend who works in um, who lectures in digital media and, and, and it's he he's very passionate about sort of sustainability in the future as well and we're, we're trying to think well how can students and teachers share their own thoughts on this topic so it's not a one-way street 
So we, we just invite a meeting with him this afternoon about about that idea. Um, oh, exciting! Yeah. Hey, watch this space. Um, we'll we'll see how it goes. I'm also thinking about more more of a sort of a printed resource, and um, yeah, as my ideas develop and hopefully bring people into the conversation and you know spread the message that that hope needn't be about complacency. Hope can be about action and 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 changing the world. But for the for the better. Do we have a time yet, or is it still somewhere manana? We're on the way, but you haven't got a launch date. Oh yeah, there's there's, there's no launch date as as yet. Um, but in the meantime, I'm hoping to, to keep on writing, thinking, reading, and and collaborating, and um, working with the GA and members of the GA um, uh, on forums like uh, the Decolonising Geography Group has been really good and, and, and colleagues within school and uh, different departments are, are getting involved as well so that's what I'll do in, in the meantime. I, I just exploring your blog recently and you, you've done a piece on David Lambert's 2021 article The Geography of It All which is an inspiring read and you've unpicked that one and uh, I, I was fascinated to read how you'd applied what David had written. Yeah it was really interesting he, he was looking at Geography's perceived competition with history uh, for students and um, the physical and human divide uh, within geography. Um, he, he basically looked at how geography um, uh, has got a value, not just for students, but the future of planet Earth as well. It was a very broad ranging article. And I it, it, made, it got me thinking, what should the global dimension of geography involve? Now, I'm, I appreciate I'm just looking at the global dimension and there are lots of local geographies, hyper-local geographies and lots of specialists. But I, I sat back and thought, what does this mean about the global dimension of geography? And I tried to coalesce my thoughts. And I thought, well, one idea is that we do need to look at this big picture geography. Yeah, look at temporal trends and look at global trends. Um, another idea I thought was looking at, we need to spend more time looking at cooperative geographies what happens when humans work together so whether it's the antarctic treaty montreal protocol etc looking beyond or critiquing the idea of the tragedy of the commons mm. um and then the third one was future geographies it's this idea that we've been talking about today that geography is of, of all the subjects that students can take it, it's the one where it can help students to consider what the future is to shape the future um, and it can be a good selling point for geography. If, we, if we're coming down to nitty gritty and numbers of students and the attractiveness of the subject, the idea that students can shape the future by studying geography um, is something we need to look at. And, and again, I mentioned David Hicks. He's been a, uh, an inspiration. I, 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 you know, there's a couple of critiques I've got of his work, but the idea that the future's dimension of geography is important is one that I share. So there's a few ideas that I've, I, that Lambert article got me thinking about. You're putting together all your ideas, but it sounds like, because not just teaching and blogging and writing and tweeting and, and the like, you've now started a PhD. Well, as I've moved to be a part-time teacher, I've gone into a PhD to try to give some sort of rigour to some of my thoughts. And um, it's about the concept of progress and future in geography so it's very much on what on what i'm doing in in hopeful education and i'm trying to trace back and see how this concept has developed and and how current thinking um 
uh, compares to previous conception of the idea of progress in geography. And that's you know, progress in terms of advancement, if you like, not necessarily growth, but uh, advancement and not in terms of progress in terms of how do I get from a level seven to level eight, obviously. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's um, something that I'm, in my first year of what could be five to seven years of, of study. Um, yeah. I can't think of many places better, perhaps, to sit and study than in the area around Bradford. I've, I've been, I didn't know very much about it, to be fair. I, I, and I'm working with a school north of Bradford now in Cottingley. What a lovely city, but what a lovely area, too, in the southern Pennines. So I, th I thought I'd, I'd just ease back a little bit and ask you about what are your favourite local places in the area around school? Yeah, well, I, I've i got more and more towards cycling to school and, and even my commute is, is, is quite nice. It's, it, it's, it's yeah, on like an urban road, but it, it's quite nice. And there's a, a nice bit of bike path um, next to where the old Bradford Beck used to flow. Um, but going a little bit beyond there, we've got Bailden Moor, um, we've got Eshelt Woods, and then at we the weekends, there are there's the dales to explore the the southern dales um and as um i enjoy orienteering i'll go to orienteering events uh, nearby and um, enjoy the out the outdoors there's quite a lot on on our doorstep here um, i live in guiseley just between La uh, leeds and bradford and yeah there's a, a lot to enjoy whether you're on two feet or two wheels um, and ideally with a, a map and a compass in your hand as well um, yeah, well, I did the, the White Rose Classic a couple of weeks ago, three weeks would it be, from Ilkley, yeah. the cycle ride yeah. from Ilkley. I, I did the short version. I did the 85 miler. Um, God, my, my mate wasn't fancying doing the 120 miler. What a lovely area to cycle around. It's absolutely fantastic. A yeah. little bit less sharp than the Peak District where I am. Not quite such... Well, I'm going to say not quite such challenging hills, but that's not really fair. I think the long ride took in some beasts. We only did one of the top 100 climbs, but what, a, what an area. And it's so popular for, for, for cycling in particular. And we've got like the, the Brownlee brothers uh, from the area and we've, uh, there's the um, triathlon training facilities and you see big, big groups. And you've got um, uh, Lizzie Armistead and, and other uh, cyclists who've come up through the through the, the dales as their sort of training ground. And, you know, the Brownlee brothers are still based in only a few miles away from here. And they go out on the on the roads and I've, I've seen them in a couple of different cafes. And this is their, you know, this is where they honed their skills. So it's a great, it's great to um, have that area on, on on my doorstep. And you still fell run, don't you? You still do races, I'm jealous. I do more races than I should, than my, than my body allows. So <laughs> I only have, Achilles treatment, but I'm also doing a local fell race, or um, and I do one or two mountain marathons a year, where most of it's walking, but you've got the navigation elements, and it's great to get out for a, a couple of days. But um, yeah. hey, hey, don't tell anybody we walk on mountain marathons. I know. <laughs> I've, yeah, yeah. I've had 15 years of of people going, "Oh wow, you do a mountain marathon, and you carry all your kit?" Yeah, yeah, and we run all the way up everything. Yeah. <laughs> Stop giving away any secrets. Yeah, sorry about that, but no. They sound, they, they sound like we run all the time, but no. 
some of the terrain is pretty tough. <laughs> okay, as we're coming to the end of the podcast, and it is hopeful and optimistic geography, and you're a geography teacher and I'm not anymore. What are your what are your hopeful thoughts? What can teachers who've listened to this take away and feel positive about as uh, as they go back to their classrooms? I, I just think we, we can make a difference you know, in the classroom, on field trips and in public discourse like 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 this and like GA conference and with with colleagues and with um, with friends and with students, informal and formal discussions. You know, we're shaping the future of the subject. But as geography teachers, we're really well placed to in our own small modest way to shape the future of of the world so it's you know get involved not just in lessons get involved more broadly add your voices um and yeah the, the future's yet to be um the future's yet to be written so let's let's um not underestimate what we can do It's been fascinating again talking to you, David, and it's made me a little bit more hopeful as well. Thank you very much for coming on JogPod. No, thanks for the uh, opportunity and thanks for the great chat.